Hi, I'm Diana. And I'm Susanna. And you're listening to Global Caveat. The podcast where we demystify global health. On today's episode, we'll be exploring puberty, sexuality, and consent. All within the context of sex education with guest Patrick Kelly, a science teacher in California. For more than four decades, sex education has been a critically important but contentious public health and policy issue in the United States and globally. The need for formal instruction came from the rise in adolescent non-marital pregnancies in 1960s and the HIV-AIDS pandemic in the 1980s. There was a great need to make sure that topics such as contraception, condoms, and sexually transmitted infections were understood. This led to a widespread implementation of school and community-based programs in the late 1980s and early 1990s. But the focus of sex education was on potential diseases that could result from having sex. On this episode, we go beyond the traditional public health lens of talking about diseases and discuss the core fundamentals of sex education in schools, in the home, and everyday life. Hi, Patrick. Thanks for joining us. Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and where people can reach you on social media? Sure. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, my name is Patrick Kelly. You can find me on Instagram at Patrick Kelly with an underscore. But most of my science communication is on YouTube. It's youtube.com slash corporis. Um, all this stuff will be, I'm sure, linked in some kind of show notesy thing at the bottom, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it will. Awesome. Um, I'm a elementary school and junior high science teacher. I also teach language arts, but the science stuff is more compelling for today. And when we started talking about like we wanted to do a sex ed podcast, I'm like, what? I'm not really qualified for that. Like, what have I done that's sex ed in the past? And it's really been a lot of little things. And that's. Oh, I am so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't realize that my um, I was watching Friends. (laughs) that's fantastic do we keep that in i really hope so i'm so sorry about that it's gone now (laughs) it's all good we'll just pick up where we left off here so thinking about like you know what are we going to talk about when we talk about sex ed and your mission of like demystifying global health is what goes into sex ed. And I feel like that's where my background is a little bit more diverse because right now I'm targeted, you know, with the younger kids, the teenagers as young as 10 and as old as 14. But I've also worked with older adults when I was working in cardiac rehab centers because, of course, a lot of them are, you know, worried about are their hearts healthy enough for sexual activity. Sex ed is everywhere, right? It's so multifaceted. It's so not just, hey, you are in sixth grade and you're learning reproductive anatomy. Like it has to be a larger a larger thing past just a one sex ed. That's great. So just to be clear, um, you work primarily with the youth population, right? Correct. Okay. And it sounds like you've done, you haven't actually taught like sex ed itself, but you've definitely been around it in, in multiple ways. Right, exactly. And that's like, I'm not a sexologist, a clinical sexologist, any of that. I've just had my hand in different aspects of overall sex education. Man, and like doing the research for this episode, it just seems so much like, is there one, like, is there a good definition of sex ed, like going into a global health lens? You know, I I guess that's my question for both of you, because you two are in global health. Going into this, what do you define as sexual education? I mean, well, Diana, you totally put you on the spot. Sorry. (laughs) Um, I don't think that I use the traditional like this is a sex ed class because fun fact, I never had a sex ed class in any Mm -hmm. of my schooling career but I think it's more of just an education on 
or it should be on sexual health, sexual reproductive health, and then like sexuality, in my opinion, that's how it should be. But I don't necessarily think that's the way that it is. Yeah, yeah totally. You're, you're correct yeah. in that. Yeah. I, <laughs> Susanna, what about you? Let's see. My background in sex education is kind of interesting because around fifth grade, in sixth grade, we had sex ed, but it was more about the anatomy. Mm-hmm. And so we, my very first sex education teacher was actually a male. And he was brought into the school and he had like this diagram of the woman's body and the male body and like the changes that would happen as we enter puberty. Right. And it was funny, you know, we're all young and we're all giggling. And we have these pamphlets and it's recess and we're all looking at these pamphlets. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> um, and I remember that. That's my earliest memory. And then I went into high school and health was a required class for our first year as a freshman. And uh, one of the class sessions, we had sex education. And that was what I got was, and this is in a public school, like in the Denver area in Colorado and what I got was you know he the guy was talking about he how he's in a committed relationship but they're practicing abstinence um but then he said but if you want to have sex here are the consequences consequences what a word it was more about consequences because he showed a lot of pictures about different like infections and all of that and then he did the whole um he got a piece of like duct tape clear duct tape ripped it off and he's like this is like if you're a virgin you know clean piece of duct tape and then he stuck it on someone else and it stuck it on another person and it kept sticking around he was like that's that was representing Mm -hmm. how many times you have sex and then at the end he's like essentially you lose your stickiness you know and the funny thing is like i i interpreted that and i was like cool like i understand that but it wasn't until way later like i mean freshman year of college was a while back but maybe like 10 years later when i watched a video from john oliver talking about sex education yep i know the one you're talking about (laughs) yeah and he brought that up about like people using that example and he's like you're essentially telling people that they're not worth as much the more sexual partners that they have or something like that and that just like blew my mind i was like oh my god I can't believe I absorbed all that and I just didn't even process it that way. Right. Yeah. Or like the language of, you know, quote, losing virginity. I know that's that's a problematic thing that we've been trying to unpack for a while now, but just like how we've talked about sex education in a traditional sense for a long time, it's very clearly like it needs an overhaul. And this is us in, you know, growing up in America where there's something in place. And so over the course of our conversation, we'll talk about things on like on the global scale, but also what we can do here, you know, as adults in the States here. Sure. So looking at over sex education has a bunch of different aspects to it, right? And so our working definition, most people's definitions is probably going to be like the biological and reproductive health side of things where we need to teach reproductive anatomy, uh, how reproduction works, and maybe a little bit of like, you know, immunology and infectious diseases and how STIs work and are transmitted. And as a educator for young people right now, that's kind of where we're starting, right? My youngest ones are 10 uh, and into fifth grade. And so at our school, I guess just as a caveat for like anybody else who doesn't, you know, know the story, uh, I work at a Catholic school. So our our sex education is not within health or within science. It's within religion class. And it's uh, it's branded as, quote, family life. And so it's basically, you know, how uh, how the religious aspect of you influences your your family. It makes a lot of sense. I know why they do it. Do I think it kind of underserves our, our students? Yeah, totally. But one of the cool things is I get these same students again in seventh grade. And now we're talking like reproductive anatomy for real in the lens of science and and reproduction as opposed to uh, as opposed to religion. So that's kind of nice to be able to do that again with them. So we have the biology side of things. But remember that sex education also has 
other aspects to it. We need to at some point teach like healthy communication, healthy self-reflection, because I think Diana, you said this, where sex education should be teaching sexuality as well as sex. So like, how would you phrase like sexuality versus sex education, I guess? Because this is something that a lot of the guidelines were talking about too, like a reference, the UNESCO review, where it was calling for a like a more comprehensive sexuality education, which does include gender identity, sexual orientation, and not just here are the mechanics of how a baby is made. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's a pretty great definition. When I think sex ed, I think anatomy, like, and traditional sex partnerships, you know, like, Mm -hmm. male has penis, and all the male reproductive parts, female has vagina. And then sex is when those things, those two things meet. But then sexuality is like yeah. so much more, you know, like yeah. sexuality is like, it's not just male, female, it could be female, female, um, male, male, or, you know, other varieties. And yeah, like, do you remember the first time you learned that intersex was a thing? Yeah, that was. Yeah, I mean, like, I remember being a kid and knowing that intersex was a thing, but not really understanding like how it worked biologically. I think it's definitely more recently that I feel like I actually understand how being born with a combination of male and female biological characteristics could actually impact a person. Yeah, and it's almost like, you know, can't can't blame you. Like, this has been so, the norm for so, like, how we've been teaching this has been so ingrained in our culture that, like, anything different is like, wait a second, hold on, back up. Like, please repeat this for me. Which is cool. Like that is ongoing sex education, not just for like, you know, 10 to 14 year olds, but for adults. Like this does need to be an ongoing thing. Yeah, I really think that it it comes down to um, I think people are scared when when you start teaching them like about sexuality and like sex education and the idea of choice and how to give consent. Mm -hmm. People get really scared, especially under a religious context. And I went to a Christian school when I was younger. So uh-huh. I think there's this fear that like all of a sudden people are just going to go out and make these quote unquote immoral decisions. But as I get older, I'm like, <laughs> actually, it's a really powerful tool to inform these people on how to make healthy choices. And that includes yeah, things absolutely. like abstinence. Like if a person chooses that without having to have this like pretext of guilt and all of that, that's a really powerful choice for that individual. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you say that there's this whole, like in terms of any religious schools, but not necessarily even religious schools, that there are parents out there that are against certain aspects being taught. But overall, a study done by Planned Parenthood found that 93% of parents are in support of sex ed. So it's just mostly that we need to have some type of definition of what it is, right? And I know that it's not the same in every single state, and that's just in the United States, but that most of them are in support of it in general. So as sexuality were to be included, Included firmly and that's inclusive of all of these different things then it actually is fine I would imagine because those parents would still want their kids to learn everything else now my question is do all those parents have the same idea of what sex education is exactly the exactly um, one of the issues right yeah probably not I don't want to make it seem like we're just looking yeah. at this with like oh Catholic education versus no. public education because that is just one of the influences you yeah. will have you know religious folks or people with different backgrounds at public schools too and so how they teach like how those parents are going to back up either lessons from school or how they're going to supplement sex education at home because remember parents are still as uncomfortable as it makes them they should still be one of the primary sex educators of, of their children yeah and so you know the schools are one aspect of it but parents 
parents are still going to influence their kids. Yeah, just backing up because you teaching in a Catholic school and Susanna, you said that you went to a Christian school. I went to a public school and I was just mm -hmm. able to opt out and that was it. Like, really? I didn't, yeah, it was just like optional. Like you were like, you could take this if you want. And I was like, well, if I could just not do anything for that semester, then I'm going to do nothing because I can. Like <laughs> That surprises so. me because I, I mean, I most of my life was through a public system and that wasn't an option but the education that i did receive was very conservative yeah man and see so Susanna, you grew up in colorado you said mm -hmm. and then diana um, you're in new york now where did you grow up in california oh <laughs> We talked about this. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's okay. Like, man, I went to school in California too. This sounds completely like completely different to me. Yeah. Um. Then again, yeah, religious school. I went to an all boys high school too. That was a, that was an interesting sex education time. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah. Giggles and Sue. But yeah, I feel like that's a good that's a good point that uh, this is going to be so different. Like even just within our country, like there's going to be so many different standards of what sex ed is. Provide a little infographic right there if you want to check it out. It's the uh, American Public Schools. But it's a little infographic about what is required to be taught in different states and how a lot of them don't even have to be medically accurate, right? If our very first job that we agreed on was like teaching reproductive anatomy or teaching like how diseases are spread, we're not fact checking ourselves and we're not making sure that like this education has to be held to a certain standard. That seems like an error. That seems like that could be a pretty easy thing to rectify. Uh, I mean, easy is easy is in air quotes here because none of this is going to be easy and a lot of it involves both a top down and a grassroots change. According to these stats from 2017, and this is from University of Southern California, of our 50 states, only 25 mandate sex education, and it only has to be medically accurate in 12 of those 25. That's mind-blowing to me. Like, that is such a large number of people who are underserved in our country. Mm. Even within those states, like, how you treat inclusivity and you're trying to take care of everyone, getting away from that old-school sex education where it's just like, yep, today is banana day, today is, like... <laughs> We're going to look at a male and female anatomy chart day. We need to do better. I feel like that is the biggest understatement of today. But Now, when you say there's a huge number or a big population that is being underserved with the mm -hmm. current education, sex education system, could you just talk a little bit more about what you what you understand or mean by underserved? Sure. Okay. Um, that is such a large can of worms to get into because like arguably everybody that is not in a, a position of privilege is underserved, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so what I was looking at was on the infographic talking about sexual orientation in an inclusive or a negative way and all LGBTQ youth need to be included, right? And so this was one of the sources from Planned Parenthood uh, said that LGBTQ youth are either overlooked or stigmatized a lot of the time. I feel like we're kind of on board and we accept that that is still going on even in 2019. And then what we need to do is like make it more inclusive for them so can you think within your own sex ed has it had it been inclusive of other non-heterosexual orientations was there any inkling or, or attitude towards that no i know we're making people dig deep here huh <laughs> and for a lot of us it's like remembering stuff from 10 you know 15 years ago i mean most of my is all family given, right. right? Since I didn't have anything in terms of school. But in terms of my family, we have like a widespread of sexuality in my family. So I feel like it was very inclusive and I feel very lucky Good. in that sense. So I think that I was very fortunate in having a very understanding and open family. Wow, that's like total opposite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, this is also like from my, the more Americanized family, like the Asian side, nothing. I never heard anything. So my, um, uh, ongoing kind of joke me among me and like my other Asian American friends is like, oh yeah, you know, sex ed in the home, it's not not even a thing. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, 
And I, it's funny because my parents don't even talk about it. It's like such a, it's, it's a really awkward topic to begin with to talk about with your parents, but it's just like not mentioned. Um, but when it comes to like things like sexuality and stuff like that too, yeah, I didn't have that kind of exposure that you, Diana, just talked about. And I think it's a mix of both religion and just culture in general. Right. Um, I mean, even though I grew up in a Christian home and my parents, like I grew up going to church and everything. So there's that aspect. But then there was this other aspect too, where just culturally speaking, not very open to the idea of things like homosexuality or like not the non-traditional marriage or things like that so right where you kind of had the path of like yes you are doing this one thing and we we know we know what you know 30 year old Susanna is going to look like I consider myself you know privileged in the sense where because I chose the path of public health I've had to learn all of that and my Mm -hmm. learning included unlearning all those traditional ingrained sex education values that don't really help a lot of people (laughs) um right but so that but then I understand where it comes from but at the same time I realize like when you look at the statistics and everything I'm like we need something better yeah absolutely within that same Planned Parenthood report like Basically, LGBTQ youth, they kind of postulate because of their education and lack of inclusivity within our modern system, they're more likely to engage in risky sexual behavior, right? And I feel like, okay, is that because we are not serving them the best we can? Is that because they've, you know, we don't offer resources? How can we better serve this population? Like as educators, that's what it's all about, right? Is serving a population of students who are learning from us. Um, It shouldn't just be like, we get to direct everything. This should be a purpose behind the policies that we put in place. All right, we're identifying some problems, but like, how are we going to kind of overhaul and unlearn some of those behaviors like you were saying, Susan? I, I love how you included that right there. How do we unlearn behaviors that have been so ingrained in us? And now because like millennials are finally getting in charge here, millennials tend to be a little bit more progressive. How can we then change our system? Visibility and representation are probably one of the easiest things to do. As a teacher, I like to use examples that aren't always heteronormative. And in talking about, you know, in generalities here, however you do it at your school or however you're influencing young people is going to be different, right? How a teacher talks to kids versus how a sports coach or whatever activity you're involved in, that's going to be different. And what aspect of sex education you take is as well. So all the stuff is different, multifaceted. The pronouns thing, trying to make that a little bit more normal. Um, So asking pronouns either at the beginning of the semester or at the beginning of a class, just so that it's not, I feel like if more people do it, then it's it's more normalized, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just as easy as a question as like, what's your favorite type of ice cream, right? I like mint chocolate chip. I go by he, him, and cool, you can call me Mr. Kelly, whatever. If we start making it that normal, then it's they're going to go into their adult lives thinking it's normal too. Right. Not only in the classroom you can use the pronouns thing, but I've noticed, myself included, a lot of people within my university started putting pronouns in our um, sign-off, in our email, so that we all have it. And it's become more normalized because I want to say maybe 50% oh, cool. of the staff does it now um, in the public health school here. So it's like another yeah, way just to awesome. like see it more normalized. For sure. Yeah. I address my eighth grade. Well, everyone in my school is y'all. And for like the first couple months, it was like, hmm, y'all, y'all, y'all. They were making fun. The kids were making fun of me for it. And that's like, all right, that's fine. But whatever. It's like it's being ingrained into your brains. And sure enough, like now it's finally getting to the point where they're using y'all on a pretty frequent basis. So which is really good because on the West Coast, it's very much you guys. Hey, you guys. Right. That's that's very normal. Like, that's definitely what I remember. Whatever, man. Tease me all you want. Working. (laughs) Uh, changing changing terminology seems trivial, I think, to some people, but it does have a lot of power for sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's talk about the rest of the world because we are Americans. We have, you know, we have some issues that we need to tackle in our schools, but 
you know, the rest of the world has has big issues also. So in talking about this with like a couple of people, I didn't even know about this uh this film that was like up for a bunch of awards, period, end of sentence. Have you two heard of it? No, I have not. Oh, man. Okay. Um, the trailer will be linked in everything here, but it's super well done. Um, it is a story, and I haven't, I haven't actually seen the video yet, so I might be completely off my, off my basis, but the trailer is fantastic. It's basically talking about how uh, reproductive health is done in India and how those girls have been so underserved and how like being on a period in some other cultures is just nobody's preparing for it and everything is being swept under the rug and the, sh- and the stigma of like, hey, you now need to go outside of the classroom. We can't distract everybody else from from their learning because you're doing something, right? Yeah. I'm glad that this movie is being made and it looks like it's so well done that people are going to want to watch it. So I definitely recommend yeah. checking out that trailer. Support those filmmakers. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. I think it's also interesting yeah. because I feel like I'm so used to the idea of uh, other countries doing the whole, you're having your menstrual cycle, you need to not be here for that entire week because I'm so used to it because it's already in public health so much. And I also work in an office where I work closely with the women and children's health team that I never really think mm-hmm. about how that's not something that most people already know. Like I always assume that it's common knowledge, but it's just common knowledge in my field. Diana, from your perspective then, like how do we start getting that message out there? I think the fact that there's a film is great because I think a lot of people will watch films, especially if it's done as well as the trailer that you've just described is showing it. Because no one's going to sit there and read about it. No one wants to do that. But definitely, I think films are the way to go in terms of getting people to watch. And then even just having a trailer is enough if that gives people the insight into seeing that. Yeah, I think within science communication, like we have our facts ready and we all love learning. Like we are the people who are going to read entire sets of guidelines or pretty dry content no matter what, because we just we like learning these things. But yeah. for most consumers, it's going to have to be put in some kind of palatable package in order to consume. And so the information can still get across, but they did a beautiful job with it. And I think people are going to want to watch it. Going for the rest of the world here. The rest of the world is a big place. So it is going to look very different from country to country. Europe tends to be on the more socially progressive side of things. They have, by their metrics and by metrics of success, it is all different. Most organizations tend to use teenage pregnancy and incidence of HIV and new cases of HIV as their metrics of success. I understand why HIV is a, you know, is a huge problem globally where I didn't know this before doing this research, supposedly America of industrialized nations has the largest teenage pregnancy rate. Is this common knowledge that I just didn't know about? Um, <laughs> I'm not shocked about it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not surprised. But then I also wonder, like... How are they getting that information? Yeah. Because it's likely other places might be under-reporting. Yeah, absolutely. Because we might also have the highest because we are reporting it the most. Mm-hmm. Right, absolutely. Yeah. Like, all right, so what's if that's one of the measures of success that we're using, how are we going to integrate that into our into our policy? But yeah, all right, going back to around the world then. So I looked at like more global statistics, like looking at the UN specifically, uh, that UNESCO report we referenced earlier. I just want to read a quote from it because uh, it's, again, a good overarching guideline here. A good quality sexuality education, and that's the word sexuality again as opposed to sex education, needs to be delivered at a scale on a sustained basis to make a significant impact, and it needs to become institutionalized within national systems of education. Um, And so to unpack that a little bit, you know, they were looking more at uh, incidents of HIV as like one of their measures of success, um, but also like how do we scale sex education, right? And by scaling, it's like, I think we kind of have the idea in our head of like, okay, scaling, it's like bringing it to a larger audience, but that audience isn't an 
audience necessarily, like they are students. If you are educating someone, hopefully they are involved within their education, right? Right. So the scaling that UNESCO is talking about is, yes, like within schools, that seems to be one of the, the very first places that people think of, it, of addressing, but also at the institutional level, providing teachers with training because so many are going to be coming from that old school mentality um, or from like a place that might be positive, but also like not necessarily the most scientifically based too. Uh, we want to make sure that we're getting a lot of different aspects covered and to reach as many geographic populations as possible and also reaching people where they are how do we make sure that we're working with where people currently at within their education and within the resources available to them to make sure that the sex ed is going to be impactful for that time in their life right that's where i am for sure not an expert right like i am like okay this is interesting stuff but why the scaling is so important is because like just having a classroom-based education isn't going to be enough after a 2010 review just using the school-based programs didn't actually change hiv incidents and i know like it's not a huge amount of time but like like in the last five-year gap, it seems like it's enough to see some kind of, of difference. I don't know. Again, that, I don't know public health studies. In epidemiology and, and global health, that could be like a very short time frame. I mean, yeah, I think it depends on what we're trying to talk about and what we're trying to measure like in terms of time frame. And also in terms of funding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's interesting, though, that UNESCO is talking about the whole idea of scaling because I think in global health, there are these efforts to tackle various issues using scaling and scaling is brought up as a as one of those things that like we need or that we need to work towards so that we can try and standardize and everything but that's always also kind of this problem because it's like if we're starting to talk about the global scale it's very context specific people have different backgrounds people have different understandings of what sex is within their culture um, and even what what sexuality is within their cultures you know and that's not just specific to like countries outside of the United States, even within pockets of communities within the United States, people have different understandings. So I think that's interesting. I mean, I understand, like you said, the measure of pregnancies and HIV as like one of those ways to measure sex education. But at the same time, I could see how that's super limiting as well. It doesn't really encompass everything that we need to know. Right. Like that's not bringing in consent. That's not bringing in finances. I mean, yeah. all these like little, I almost like giggle at myself when I say finance, like that's the best you can come up with. Like how, but it's true. how making a family is an enormous financial burden for, yeah. I mean, I don't want to say burden because they're little gifts. They're little, you know, children are but great. They cost a lot. <laughs> they yeah. are expensive. <laughs> yeah. But it's also like finances works in so many different ways because even if they're using HIV as a measure, it's not necessarily because the person doesn't know. The person might just not have access to what they need. So like finances goes beyond just family planning. It also goes with you might be educated enough, but you can't afford to do anything about that. Yeah, I think that's a good comment on the statistics, too. It's like, all right, we see from after 2010 here that like just the classroom isn't enough. It needs to go. It needs to go past that we should give some people some takeaways here. Look at that smooth transition. <laughs> so, and, and I want to get your opinions on this too, because, you know, like Diana, you were saying your sex ed was pretty non-existent and it seems like you've kind of taken it into your own hands as far as like, all right, now we're going to make sure that a lot of, a lot of women and families are going to be able to have access to education. And then Susanna, yours seems a lot like, a lot like mine, where it's like, all right, religious upbringing. And so we're not going to talk about it. You'll technically have sex education, but like, you know, let's, let's let them take care of it. Let's let mm -hmm. the school take care of it that so if you are in the position of influencing some younger kids so one of the biggest things right
right now within all education is making your teaching style student centric, not teacher centric. And so right away, that means like the students should be the number one thing you think about, which seems like, yeah, obviously that's what students are here for. They're here to learn. They're not here to like make the teacher feel good about themselves. So when you are in the position of teaching anything that is sex ed or sex ed adjacent, like proper communication or like personal boundaries, making sure that it is not just back in my day kind of stuff, right? Emphasizing like the student's above all. They are the main characters in the story, not you. Also making sure that it is developmentally appropriate because even within one of my junior high classrooms, that's ages 12 and 13. But as I'm sure you remember growing up, like there are 12 year olds who are voracious consumers of all things that are dating and sex ed, or they have older brothers and sisters, or, you know, they've seen like a pregnancy in their family very recently. And so they're like, that is number one thing on their brain. And then I've got other 12 and 13 year olds that are just like, no, like I'm good. I'm good. And so you need to meet the you need to meet the students where they are. One of the things that Liz teach and transform, she is not necessarily like a sex educator. I think she teaches uh, at a third grade at a charter school down in Los Angeles. But she came out with an article, I want to say in 2017, that was how she teaches consent to third graders, right? And it's not in the context of sex education. They're, you know, they're eight years old, but it is in the context of like, hey, this is what it means when somebody wants a hug, right? This is how you can tell that somebody doesn't want to hug, even though they're not saying no, right? The write-up that she did and some of the board drawings, like the little whiteboard drawings that she's doing for her kids were just so fantastic. She was an awesome communicator, again, on Instagram, that's teach and transform. She's a huge inspiration with how like I talk to kids about consent, but that I bring that up just because like it is going to be different how you talk to an eight year old versus how you talk to an 18 year old. You can always talk about consent. You can always talk about personal boundaries and reinforcing that their entire lives. Hopefully they'll be very clear on what consent actually means. I think that's brilliant. I mean, it starts when they're young because these behaviors, behaviors translate and we create patterns in how we respond and how we act, not just within that specific context, but our learned behaviors repeat in other contexts as well. The fact that she's teaching third graders, if this person doesn't want a hug, then you say, okay, and you mm-hmm. move on with your life, you know? And that can translate later into um, bigger things. And later when they're, you know, considering having sex and stuff like that, that certain behavior, if they've learned it and it's internalized, it's more of an automatic response to be like, oh, this person said no, okay. Yeah, absolutely. In fifth grade, we're going over like how to do vital signs, you know, taking pulse, counting respiration, doing blood pressure. And so, you know, they are 10 and 11 and they're going to get that puberty talk like at the end of this year. And so like, man, seeing seeing this talk happen and like seeing that part of the fifth grade experience happen a couple times over now, it is almost like a switch gets flipped and like how they interact is just completely different after that. And so that they don't introduce consent in that, right? Because of course, you know, sex is strictly, you know, for within marriage and you've consented to everything at that point, not even thinking that like, you know, you can consent or not consent within within marriage or within a relationship. So it's like, well, we have the opportunity here in this lab. Let's do this. What is it mean like if somebody doesn't want their pulse taken right they can tell you no and then not give you their radial pulse right so like trying to use that opportunity as a way to teach consent as opposed to making it exclusively tied to sex Mm -hmm. is one of the things that i've tried to do more of i like that consent-based sex education and in colorado actually like two days ago there was a 30-hour deliberation on trying to advance a bill that actually places consent at the heart of sex education in the public system, public education system. And 
it's advancing. So now they are going to move towards putting consent at the heart of sex education. And yeah, it was like this big debate. How do you talk about that for 30 hours? Hopefully it's all (laughs) logistics about how do we implement this best? What I read was it's now the ninth state to put consent at the core of sex ed. Man, high five to Colorado for moving this along. And hopefully it does become number nine. But that number needs to be a lot higher. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So totally opposite of consent based practices. I don't know if y'all are aware, but the two month period of time just closed on the Department of Education's new rules that would favor the um, accused, the assaulter in any college campus assault cases, basically making it so that if it's not something that happened directly on the campus, then it's not valid. And let's be real, even if it was, the track record shows that it's really not in favor of the victim anyway. This is all happening while the government was shut down. So a lot of things were just glossed over and no one knew what was happening. So there was that. And then there's also the definition of domestic violence got changed recently and it removes all of the psychosocial and emotional aspects of it. So it's only physical harm. Great. The next portion of this episode contains stories and experiences related to sexual assault. They do not go into detail. These incidents are briefly referred to for explanation purposes. If needed, fast forward to 39 minutes. Can we, can we talk about college campuses a little bit more? Yeah, Absolutely. so I'm here in this lovely state where Columbia University is. I don't know if you heard of this when it happened, but this girl from Columbia carried around her dorm room mattress as a form of protest after being sexually assaulted. She carried the mattress around with her. I'm actually unfamiliar with the story. Yeah, so it was because they weren't taking her case. She did this as a form of protest that was basically a demonstration to show, um, hey, administration, look at this baggage you're making me carry around. And it was her literal dorm mattress. And she took it everywhere. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that was back in 2014. All right, that's... Nothing has happened? He was cleared of any misconduct. Yeah. He graduated, quote, as a distinguished John Jay scholar. So the honor recognizes, quote, remarkable academic and personal achievements, dynamism, intellectual curiosity, and original thinking. Yeah. (sighs) I really... Okay. If there is an organization on your campuses, if there are any, like, college students listening, one of the organizations that I was involved in in undergrad was called CARES. Uh, C-A-R-E-S, Creating a Rape-Free Environment for Students. And that was our organization that did a lot of programming for awareness of sexual assault, right? Where people don't want to acknowledge that it's a thing, where it's actually one of the most common things that happens on college campuses. Something like one in four women will experience it during our, in undergrad. And like, that is overwhelmed. Like, that's a really big number of people. So how do we, you know, how do we fix it? Will we ever fix it? Hopefully we can make a dent. Like if we can at least start moving the needle forward. CARES was the organization that I was involved in. It'll look a little bit different at your universities or your high schools or whatever is going to be the case. I don't want to see what it looks like in high schools just because I feel like it'll make me really sad. But hopefully that is now going towards our high schools also, where at least maybe there's, I don't know, like a group that discusses or tries to implement like student-led sex education or healthy Mm -hmm. relationships on campus. Did either of your universities do the clothesline project? Mm -hmm. I don't know what that is. The clothesline project takes a clothesline and different colored t-shirts and then people who are affected in some way by sexual assault get to add their piece to the project. So it can be like, hey, green t-shirts represent this person as a survivor. Red t-shirts could represent that um, it happened to a family member. White t-shirts could represent that like you recognize that it's a problem. I don't think those are the actual color codes, but example. Um, The idea is that now you're walking around campus and you can't ignore this issue. You see the clothesline everywhere, and now you want to educate yourself about like, oh, what's this is getting my attention. How can I how can I help? How can I make myself more aware of this thing? How can I bring consent to the forefront of our of our discussions? I've seen it on 
my campus when I was in college. And similar to the CARES program that you had, Patrick, we had something like that on my campus. And what I wanted to add on to that was, I think sometimes people think that's for people that um, that aren't necessarily victims or survivors of sexual mm-hmm. assault. They think, oh, it's for the general public so that we can learn bystander effect, which I think is super important. Like bystanders, sure. you know, um, you, they have a lot more power than you would assume. And, but in my experience, so, and I've talked about this in the past on my like social media platforms, but I, I have the history of sexual assault, right? And so it's funny because people are like, oh my gosh. And I'm like, yeah, but it's like very common, you know, like out of how many women you know in your life, a lot of them probably do as well. They just don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so for, for me, I mean, I was raped and then I didn't know how to process it. And then, and then I actually studied abroad, right? So I had this time abroad. I came back and in college, I was involved in a multicultural sorority. And the Greek life, we all had to go through this training through the program on, um, like the CARES program that you had on campus. And I remember I was sitting in on the training and it was talking about what is consent. Um, bystander effect and things like how to validate and believing survivors like what does that mean and it was the weirdest thing because I feel like that was the first time that I felt like felt like someone was telling me it wasn't your fault it's incredibly powerful I think to for people to get involved then because I was like you know I wasn't even one I just went to this training because it was required for my organization to go but the impact that it had on me, of course, given like my background, it was directly relatable. But at the same time, I'm like, you know, if if you're one of these people where resources like that are available, I think um, it's important to realize the gravity of how it can affect the people around you because you're you're in harnessing this power to do something about it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people, it'll be their first exposure to it. Yeah. Right? Thinking about where we're talking about like sex ed with the younger kids, we never bring that up. We never bring up like definitions of sexual assault. Like just beginning to talk about consent with my 10-year-olds, it's like we're not drawing the line of like, hey, this is how you can appropriately give somebody a hug to now this is one of the most terrible crimes you can commit right mm-hmm. so like it's all it still needs to be evolving throughout that person's throughout that person's learning career mm-hmm. yeah man and Susanna thank you for telling your thank you for telling your story yeah of course thanks for listening but even I think it's interesting how you bring up that we have the ability to teach consent in different ways but in other countries it's not the same right so Susanna you were describing your experience and it's interesting because I feel like timing wise the description of both of our experiences is quite similar, except you experienced being able to talk about it in the US, whereas I was in Italy when I decided, oh, I think I'm going to report this. But I was in another country where they don't believe that sexual assault is a thing. So when I was in that setting and I had, like, I decided to talk about it with a therapist, they were like, oh, do you think that really counts? Like, that's not really a problem. Like, like he was just being a guy. And I was like, what? And like, because they are so, they have masculinity so ingrained in them that I left there being like, oh, well, it's my fault. And it took me coming back here being like, no, this is like definitely not my fault. So I think that just the fact that we even have the ability to talk about it in the U.S. and in some other countries also have the ability to talk about it so openly is a great thing because that's not something that everyone experiences because in other countries, they don't have that at all. Absolutely. I admire both of you so much. Thank you. Thank you for your stories. And like, if I can address like, again, other educators and and other men with this, like, so 
Diana, for sure. Like that, the blaming that goes on to those who were assaulted is absolutely like, that's one of the biggest things that we need to change in our culture and how we treat sexual assault, right? And so like now as sex educators, now we have to put the onus on those who would be doing the assaulting. And so that's where our talks on consent are the most important, right? Where yeah. now you are, you as an assaulter. And of course, an assaulter never thinks that they are an assaulter. They just think that they were doing whatever else. They were they were getting either what they, again, heavy sarcasm on the next couple of words. Uh, they were trying to progress the relationship, right? They were doing something that was totally warranted for the time, but, you know, there was miscommunication Oh, or they wanted it. I read it as they totally wanted it. Right, right. I think you talking about linking it in the early years, I always, when people talk about that, I think about, you know what, growing up in middle school, when girls start wearing bras and stuff, it was a thing for me growing up where guys would come up behind you and they would snap your bra strap and they would think it's super funny. You know, pulling your hair, that starts really early. Yeah, the idea that if you tease a girl, you like her. Yeah, and then it's like, it's like, oh, it's because he likes you or maybe because he thinks you're cute. And it's like, it's funny because now when I think about it, I'm like, yeah, I really didn't like getting my bra straps snapped on my skin constantly and getting my ponytail yanked like out of nowhere. But socially in that moment, you just see it as like, it's acceptable because maybe he likes you. And I hate that. That's something where I can talk to my, my older students about that as far as like, all right, y'all have crushes. Like, I see it every day here. I see how it works out. And like, we can't be mean to each other. I do want to point out, though, that I know in, when we're talking about consent and sexual assault, I mean, largely, of course, women are at the receiving end of this. But I do want to point out that there are men who do get sexually right. assaulted as well. Yeah. And LGBTQ folk are often the most vulnerable for various reasons. So, yeah, I, I do just want to throw that out there and be like, I know we're talking about it oh, within you. the context of like women as the primary victims, but we also recognize that it's not just about people who identify as women. Thank you for, yeah, thank you for bringing that in. To go back to, do we have a resource for where people can go to continue this conversation, by the way? Like if people have a point that they want to talk about? Yeah, absolutely. So listeners are welcome to have a conversation on the Global Caveat Instagram page on this post with this episode. And we'll also open up conversation in our stories please feel free to share your resources and thoughts with everyone else the last little bits to clean up here before i guess we all sign off here if you're in the education field here remember to use inclusive language we talked about getting away from like the non-heteronormative and non-cis normative just because your students are picking up on that and to include them it should be participatory that you should be involving your students in their own education. Again, I know it sounds wild, but that participation doesn't mean that not every day is condom banana day. That could mean that like they are learning. That's a, it's a great day. I think we should put it on our calendars actually. Um, <laughs> uh, participation could look a little bit different. Oh gosh. Involve them. That's all I'm trying to say. We're going to get into mean giggle territory here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, bring the parents into the conversation. They're still a big resource and still a big place where you can continue the conversation. Um, if you are going to talk about sex also in a school setting, you need to make sure that you're kind of warning the parents. Like I always make sure to give like a weekly email of what's going on in the classes. And so the week before I teach anything that involves reproductive anatomy, just a heads up to the parents like, Hey, if your student comes home and asks all about like where sperm come from, I, I did that. Uh, we talked about it. But that also, you know, the parents do need preparation too. like they need to think about like, all right, what am I going to say? Like, how am I going to take this very crucial moment in my child's development 
and do something positive with it. I think earlier in the show, we mentioned like what 92% of parents want good sex education. Yeah, well, close 93% of parents. And hopefully 100% want a good life for their child. Yeah, I would hope so. Made up statistic, but I hope it's true. We just, we just hold. No, you hang up yeah. first. No, you hang up first. Um, yeah, I guess. All right, Susanna, Diana, thank you very much. Do you have a, a formal sign-off thing? Yeah, we do. Okay. And that's the episode. Thanks to Patrick Kelly for joining us. As a reminder, you can find him on the YouTube channel Corporis, C-O-R-P-O-R-I-S, and on Instagram at PatrickKelly underscore. And please subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Your support helps us grow. You can also support us by becoming a member of our Patreon page. Susanna and I spend a lot of time making sure our information is correct, but there are only two of us. So if you catch something, please let us know. You can find all of the resources for this episode on our website. And feel free to join the conversation on our Instagram page at Global Caveat. Feel free to reach out to either of us by emailing globalcaveat at gmail.com or to either of us on Instagram at Cladalus and at Sujani. And a special thanks to all the people that have to listen to us brainstorm and to Cordell Glass for producing our music. 